passage, verse 16. This is God's word. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Read that far in God's word. Whenever we drive past a lot of cars, a lot of people getting out of cars and gathering together, we wonder, wonder what they're doing. You might see a long line of people at a store. Oh, maybe there's a sale I didn't hear about. Or you find out they're uh, doing something uh, about that sale. Others uh, gather maybe for a birthday party, a concert, a game. What's that group going to do is a natural question. A second natural question is whenever we drive past a house or a building that's being constructed, it's being built on some open lot, you wonder who's going to live in that house or which business will occupy that building. It's a second question. It's normal for us to ask on a common basis. In today's study, we ask both questions about the church. What are the people gathering to do and who is going to live there? What we're gathering to do is to be the temple of God. Who's going to live there is the Holy Spirit. You might think that's quite elementary. This isn't second grade catechism. I find that there's a time when we need to be reminded of the basics. Uh, Not to make mention of what the culture's doing today to give homage to it, but it's on our minds. A football analogy for a moment is a famous coach who every year, no matter the fact that his players were professionals who had been a long time in the league, would start the first practice in the summer towards the next year by gathering his players, having taken take a knee, and say, gentlemen, this is a football. You start over and build and rebuild whatever you're about. So they gather this morning. We're talking about what is the church. Gentlemen, ladies, this is the church. The church is the temple of God, which means the Holy Spirit dwells within. This morning we prayed for the Holy Spirit. The prayer of the invocation, if you look at your bulletin and the outline, invocation means to invoke or to invite down, to ask, to plead for the Holy Spirit of God to be present in our worship service. We do that every Sunday. We did it this morning. We as worshipers of God like to be inhabited individually. We'd like to be inhabited as a body collectively by the Spirit of God to give us God's own presence and to give us God's own blessings. And so that's the main point of the message. Christ gave us the gift of his Holy Spirit. Now wait a minute. How can God give his Holy Spirit to such sinners as us without us as sinners being in danger? You know, if you're a Bible student, that you can't be in the presence of God. You can't look upon God without being in danger. It's fatal to be that close to God. How can we pray for the Holy Spirit to come? Do we not realize the danger for us? And, of course, that brings us back to the gospel, that Jesus died to cleanse us of our sins, and he rose again to make us his holy people, to send his Holy Spirit so that our holy God can be present with us, the cleansed sinners, And to use the construction language he's been using throughout chapter 3, we are each living stones. And the church that God is constructing is the living church. And it's still under construction. He continues to build. 
We continue to be built up individually. We continue to be built up collectively as a church. We're converted and then grow by reading and hearing the word of God, the spirit of Christ enlightening his word. We're reaching out to others by proclaiming that same gospel in words of hope to other sinners to come join us in the church worldwide. So we'll see how Christ gave us the gift of his Holy Spirit in three ways. Number one, it makes us the holiest place where the Holy Spirit dwells. Number two, God fiercely protects us, verse 17a. And number three, that we're holy, verse 17b. So we start with Paul's first question, verse 16. When Paul wrote, do you not know, Paul is communicating to the church in Corinth that of course they actually did know these basics, but that their actions shows they need a reminder. So Paul wrote a letter as a reminder to the church of the basics. A reminder of what? And here Paul's reminding them of two essential principles lay out right on the surface of our text. Number one, they're God's temple. Number two, God's spirit dwells in them. Since they did have this knowledge, they could be expected to live accordingly. And because they weren't, Paul's writing the letter. So being the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit or the home of the Spirit, if you will, was foundational and axiomatic for the church. It's well-known and yet apparently easily forgotten in Corinth. So just as pagan gods would live in pagan temples, if there were such gods, they're not in existence, but that's the whole idea. They build temples and believe that they live there. The one true God actually does live in a temple, but it's not a temple built by human hands, like this building or any other building. God lived in the temple that God himself is building. That temple's actually, for for the church in Corinth, the Corinthian believers themselves. So that the temple was a people who were initially given life by God in their human birth, each created, as it were, first in the image of God individually. But then, additionally, each of the believers was given a second birth, born again, received life from above, having given Uh, been given faith from from God, a a new life spiritually. They're believers, Christians. And on top of those truths, they had a collective truth, individual truths about each of them, individually as believers having been converted. But then there's a collective truth that was true about the whole set of believers in Corinth, that they were brought together and made into a church together, the body of Christ, not of various earthly stones, various living stones, that God himself was about the work of building his body in the city of Corinth. And together they came a, became a place where the Spirit of God took up residence in this world. And Paul taught the same truth when he was over in the city of Athens. He taught this truth about God to unbelieving pagan, we could call them university philosophy professors. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world, says Paul, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Acts 17, 24 and 25. Historically, we recall that it was God who commanded King Solomon to build him an earthly temple made of wood and stone for the worship of God. So how can we say that God doesn't dwell in temples made by hands? That temple was always temporary and pointed ahead beyond itself. It was just an illustration. God was pointing ahead to what better temple he had in mind. Here's how Stephen taught this truth in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, 47. It was Solomon who built a house for God. Yet the Most High 
does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord. And a moment later we read of the reaction of the people to Stephen's speech in Acts 7.54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But Stephen, listen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God. What was Stephen filled with individually? The Holy Spirit. What was he saying that the church would be filled with? The Holy Spirit. Not this temple Solomon built, but this temple that God made will be filled with his Holy Spirit. So in our study in 1 Corinthians, we are picking up on this historic truth that has been taught already by God through his servants. And here when Paul is picking up this concept and communicating it to the troubled church in Corinth, he's telling them that they're God's building. If you look back at verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, where God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. So then Paul's building on that concept throughout a chapter. It's a it's a cumulative argument that he's making, a logical flow of thought here. So we're still in chapter 3, and he's building on that idea of building. And he asked if they're fully absorbing this bedrock truth, that we are God's temple, that God's spirit is dwelling in them. They could say Paul was speaking of the church as the holiest place on earth. Think of it. What place could be more holy than the place where the Holy Spirit of God is. Paul, who later confirmed the same understanding in the second letter to the church in Corinth, same, same people, same, same church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he writes, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. By the way, notice the covenant language. I will be their God, they shall be my people, is repeated covenant language throughout Scripture. You got the point. We got the point. Paul's very clear about it. It's abundantly clear in his passage. He's repeating it now on purpose for the Corinthian church. But what's his application? What does it mean for the Corinthians that they had the Holy Spirit, that they are the house of, the home of the Holy Spirit, if you will? It meant that they must stop their unholy actions and unholy words. See, chapters 1, 2, and 3 stand together. They're a unit of Paul's concern. He unwraps it consecutively so that they understand what they need to understand first, and then he moves his way towards the application for them. His concern for them had to start with reminding them of basic truths and be strengthened as a church. Look what he had said just 15 verses earlier. Chapter 3, 3. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So what it meant that he now writes in verses 16 and 17 that they're the temple of the Holy Spirit, what it meant is that the Holy Spirit dwelled with them so they ought not to be behaving in unholy strife that grieves the Holy Spirit. Or consider what Paul wrote in All the way back in chapter 1, verse 11, it has been reported to me that there's quarreling among you. Chapter 1, 11. So again, what's the meaning for them here that he says you're the house of the Spirit? 
It means they're filled with the Spirit in the church of Corinth, yet they're still quarreling in Corinth. That's why Paul wrote to address the problem of quarreling of people who are holy in Christ. The residents of the Holy Spirit having taken up residence inside of them individually and collectively. Paul had also written that there was boasting. The, the problem of boasting led to the further problem of divisions because certain people followed certain persons and other people followed other persons. And that ought not to be because we all are following Christ. And Paul helped them to see that what Paul saw is this, the inappropriateness and damage of the Corinthian church when God's people failed to live holy lives according to the Holy Spirit. It's no small matter. They're neglecting the teaching of Christ and him crucified, which unifies. How did Paul help them? He's pointing this out to them. What seems like so basic, it's so elementary, it's not even to be repeated, but he has to repeat it. He got to the heart of the problem. Actions and words against God's people are actions and words against the Spirit of God. And sins against God's people are sins against God. And it brings us to his second point where God fiercely protects us. Look at how he follows his question. Do you not know that your God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? Put as a question. He follows that with what? This is stark. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Destroy? Really? Is that, is that the correct word, Paul? Yes. This is God's word. God's Holy Spirit carries Paul along as he writes the answer to the church in Corinth. Yes. Paul's writing this letter precisely because the factors that could do damage to God's church were already present within the church in Corinth. And what were those factors? The things he'd been writing about. Foolish teaching, replacing wisdom teaching. They had to look at the content of whatever was being taught in Corinth. But additionally, there's area of motives, such as bad motives for conducting ministry. Ministry in Corinth was being carried out, as he has unpacked in these three chapters, for personal reasons of self-esteem, status-seeking, or self-interest, and that also is harming the church. You know, these were all things that Paul had listed, so that here in verse 17, he doesn't list them again. He's at his summary point. He's at his conclusion point. Because he's listed all these things and made his careful and tight argument up to this point, now in verse 17, he can just list his point without elaborating all those again. He's summarizing. He's standing upon the list of all the problems in chapters 1 to 3, and he's ready to make his point clearly. And he makes his point this way. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is an instance of the Holy Spirit of God exercising God's rule, God's law, that the Spirit protected God's people in Corinth. And this is very strong language, you have to admit, because the Spirit fiercely protects the people in Corinth. What was it that the Spirit of God would do? The word destroy is used. It was a conditional statement. If... If a person, if any person, if anyone, Paul wrote, took actions that destroyed God's temple, then, an if-then statement, right? If, then, God would destroy him or her. 
So if a person did damage to the temple, God's spirit would do damage to him or her. Again, it sounds like revenge, doesn't it? We wonder whether it's fitting for the spirit of God to make such a statement, and here it is in our Bibles. At first hearing, it's jarring, isn't it? Is it fitting for the spirit to make such a statement? Paul's asking them to take a hard look at their actions and to bring the holy God himself into their evaluations of what had been going on in Corinth and to think again about the severity of what was happening in the church in Corinth. This response from God was a holy response from the holy God and the response from God was fitting for the wrongs being conducted against God, his temple and his spirit and his people. You could put it this way, the destruction of the destroyer was a necessary action for God to take. It was not merely a threat from the Holy Spirit. It was an explanation of how it works. God had set up the world in such a way that there were sins and consequences. Sin destroys, so the consequence was that God would respond by destroying the sinner. But the sinner already knows that. So the sinner's responsible for then setting into motion a chain of events that would come back around to the sinner. And sin leads to death for the sinner. In this case, it was sin against the church. It was sin against the temple of God where the spirit makes himself at home. It was the sin of doing damage to the temple of God, which is God's people. Anyone who led God's people astray from the word of Christ, astray from the truth of Christ, We're doing damage to the temple. Anyone who touched the church touched God. Anyone who touched the house touched the resident of the house. The people in Corinth meant to hurt people. There was only one thing that they did not take into account. God. If they had been thinking clearly, they would not have taken action against God. And here's a confirming quote from the teaching ministry of Jesus, Matthew 25, when people are giving account to God for failing to help people in the church. Listen to this, Jesus. They also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 25, 44 to 46, words of Jesus. The words of Jesus confirm the words of Paul, which he has been pointing out here. We can apply these things directly to the church through the ages to put a fine point on it. We are special in God's eyes. God's blood-bought persons. God's field. God's fellow workers. God's subcontractors, God's building, God's temple, God's church. Because the very spirit of God dwells in us only, not any other building on earth. We are God's home. If I could put it this way, God always fiercely protects home turf. And there's no one more gentle than Jesus, right? 
And yet listen to our gentle Savior speak about how fiercely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit go about the work of protecting the children of God. Matthew 18, 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew 18, 5 and 6, words of Jesus. So Jesus' severity of words and Paul's severity of words match and agree on the teaching of our second point that God fiercely protects his people. And we have left the third point, verse 17b, we are holy. Paul then ends the passage by writing this, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Holy? Wait, here we go again. We had this concern at the beginning. Holy? The Bible says I'm a sinner, and we're sinners. Who's holy? Raise your hand. It's a trick question. <laughs> you see the issue? We're sinners. This same Paul is the one who wrote it, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so we're sinners. How can he now write here in chapter 3, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians that we are holy, the holy temple of God in which lives the Holy Spirit? Brings us right back around to the gospel of grace. What if we sin? What would God do, if anything, to protect us? Would God protect us from the consequences due for our own sins? If our sins were against God, sins against the church or sins against God, And yes, God sent his son into the world to take the consequences of our sin upon himself. We understand the gospel. We come back to it. What else do we have but the gospel of grace? He's the head of the church, the cornerstone of the church. Christ paid our penalty on the cross. He gave us his righteous standing with God. As Paul wrote here in chapter 1, verse 8, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. That each of us have committed spiritual crimes. And yet our God cleanses us. Our sins against God, our sins against his church have been cleansed for all who repent, all who turn to him. We have done wrongs against others as we have given been given this gift from God of conviction of that, of repentance of that, of faith in Christ and make it right again. We've all been involved in various things. We all contributed in, in wrong ways to the breakdown of relationships. We've all spoken against living stones of the temple of God. And for all these wrongs, we ought to be destroyed. The word is destroy, remember verse 16? But God's holy wrath of destruction comes down as if it missed its target. And instead of destroying you and me, destroyed Jesus in our place. That's the gospel. It's just that simple. Rather than us being cast into the sea with millstones around our necks, our Savior took our place and he was cast, as it were, with a millstone around his neck into the abyss of death. But rather than drowning, it was by the cross. Praise God that Christ rose again, making our wearing of a millstone unnecessary. And inappropriate. Rather, we get to wear the white robe of Christ's perfect behavior as if it's ours, our record, our behavior. God fiercely protects us from our own sin. Listen for the God's protection of us that which we did not deserve in Revelation 7 when someone asked about us arriving into heaven. We are arriving into heaven. Someone spots us. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's this rabble? <laughs> Listen to this. Revelation 7. Who are these 
clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation seven fifteen to 17. Yes, we're holy. In Christ, by faith, all our sins washed and cleansed before him. That is the gospel. That's why we can be here. That's why we're part of the holy church of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled by his Holy Spirit, and that's the only reason. What have we seen? That Christ gave us the gift of his spirit. We're the holiest place on earth where the Holy Spirit dwells. God fiercely protects us. And we are holy, made holy only by Christ's redemption. My concluding application is this. The spirit of God will not stop working in his church, his home, until it's built up in holiness and safety for all of his people. I'll say it again. The Spirit of God will not stop working until his church, his home, is built up in holiness and safety for all of his people. It's interesting that the common impression in the world, the common impression of the culture, if you ask your neighbor, and they were honest with you, some pagan coworker who's honest with you, their impression of a holy man or a holy woman, if they're honest with you, Boring. Yeah, my uncle's really holy. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, boring, right? That's the impression that the world has. Isn't that fascinating? It's dead wrong. But I think you have to admit that that's the impression out there. How little your friend, your coworker, just an average pagan person, how little they understand the holiness of God. How little they understand the spirit of God in someone and the holiness that creates and what that does to a life. It's one of the most exciting, attractive things on earth to be holy. A holy man, a holy woman, a holy child of God. When you meet the real thing, it's irresistible. Every member of the church, every follower of Jesus is to be holy like that. And Paul's addressing all the Christians. He's addressing the leaders as well. Every leader, every pastor, every elder, every deacon, every committee member is only a sinner whose sins would ruin everything if it were not cauterized and cleaned up by the blood of Jesus. But because the blood of Jesus has cleaned up that person and their sins, that person is part of the holy temple of God. Leaders are retained in their place in the church, not because of their own good behavior. Leaders have the privilege of serving God and serving his people in the church because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen again, ascended, having poured out his holy, what? His Holy Spirit upon us, that we can even begin to serve God.
serve his church, and have anything to offer to the dying world. Leaders don't serve, as we've seen in these chapters, in human wisdom. Not the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of humans, not secular wisdom. Leaders in the church of Jesus Christ do not serve the church with secular wisdom. Leaders in the church of Jesus Christ serve in the wisdom of the Spirit of God, illumined by the Word of Christ, powered by the gospel of grace, in their own lives first, then flowing over into the lives of others. It's the only way. I'll say it again. The Spirit of God will not stop working until his church, his home, is built up in holiness and safety for all of his people. Let's pray. Father, grant us your spirit.